This is a test of the microphone, where at least I know I'm heard. Hello, and welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which we discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter. And today is our final wrap-up episode, full book discussion of Prince Caspian, book three, question mark? Also talking about the movie today. Don't forget the movie. Oh, and the movie. Apparently, we're also discussing some of the movie, because this is the first movie, and this is the only movie of Narnia that you've seen. Correct. So, I, of course, am Hogglestock the Hedgehog, also known as Kristen, and this is my co-host... I'm Bacchus, and, you know, I could do anything. You could Absolutely do. anything. You could do anything. And also joining us today, we have And a... who else are you? What are you known as? Who are you? You're Bacchus, also known as? Chris. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, does Bacchus have another name that I'm not aware yes, of? Yes, the Ram. Oh. And <laughs> there's three of them listed in the book. Uh-huh. Uh, anywho, I'm Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi, Kristen. And we also have... A very special guest joining us today, coming all the way from like half an hour away and uh, by by car. <laughs> okay. I try to <laughs> not do, even. I like try to twenty do minutes. Things. I try to do things that you don't get and like <laughs> coming coming all the way from a city away. <laughs> yes. And uh, go ahead and intro- go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, so I am mostly Aslan. Mostly Aslan. Also mm-hmm. known as? No, that's it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, no, my name is April Lynn. Thank you for having me on the podcast. For sure. Thanks for joining us. Uh, what is what is the part of you that's not Aslan? Uh all the other letters that don't overlap. I'm so happy that you did that because I made that joke to Chris when we first asked you to come on the podcast. Like, three months ago. <laughs> I was like, April Lynn, she's like half Aslan. <laughs> I wish. That would be the best. Oh, no, man. there is very little about me that is Aslan-like. I don't have the mane. I don't have the paws. Mm. I don't bring people back to life or strengthen them just by breathing on them. In fact, these days it's inadvisable to <laughs> breathe on people. That's uh, very yeah. true. Uh, yeah. So it's just the letters. That's about it. But do you inspire Bacchus to just bring the party? Um, I've never met him, okay. but I'd like to think that I could. All right. Cool, cool. Unchain the river god. Unchain him. Let's go. All right. So before we dive into actually talking about the book, April Lynn, I would love to hear a little bit about your history your nostalgia level your experience with reading narnia because if you may not know chris has never read these books before and is reading through them for the very first time and then um so i would love to hear your um just experience what you're what you're coming to narnia with or from yeah okay um so i as we talked about i had the this very edition uh the I don't even know which Collier Books yes. edition. I have shared uh, that cover art on our Instagram um, okay. because I felt like it was such a like weird David and Goliath kind of artwork. 
it's really awful artwork actually yeah. uh but i like the but the colors are are i don't know it's it's nostalgic um it's what i grew up with so um yeah i read at least the first few books of the series when i was a kid um probably all of them but i definitely don't i don't remember the other ones as much and then sometime in my late 20s a friend and i decided to start a I don't know if we'd call it a club because it was just the two of us, but we read aloud to each other every week. Okay. So every weekend we'd get together on a Sunday or a Saturday, um, you know, bring our breakfast and sit out on the lawn or at a park or something and read books aloud to each other. And we started with the Chronicles of Narnia. Hmm. So I read through the whole series in, you know, my late 20s, which was uh, really cool <laughs> and added a lot of ec lot extra to the book that... Um, you know, I wouldn't have picked up on as a kid. And so since then, I've had, a, a, you know, various copies and have reread them every so often, every few years or so. Okay. I read them. I, I don't know. I don't remember if I've ever actually finished the last battle. Like, I remember at least half of it, but I don't know if I ever actually finished it because I don't remember the ending. But I read the rest of the books for sure. Um, don't remember the ending as in like, you don't know what happens or just don't remember reading it. I don't remember reading it. And I probably couldn't tell you what happens with oh. certainty. Like I know a lot a treat, then. that I've done some research because I'm the one who can do more of the full book research than Chris can because he hasn't mm -hmm, read them. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. Okay. Well, I won't spoiler anything that I remember about it then. <laughs> Appreciate it. And so that's part of why we have been reading these books in the wrong order is because Chris and I, Chris had previously read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and that's it. And so we wanted mm -hmm. to start this project with a book that he had never read and I had mm -hmm. less exposure to because I had read mm -hmm. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe a dozen times. Right. Um, and Magician's Nephew only about two. So... Mm. That, that's the reasoning for why we started with the wrong book. Why we've continued in that trajectory, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say, so I used to be very adamantly like, if you're reading them in chronological order, you are doing it wrong. And the publishers who renumbered them should be shamed publicly. For sure. Um, and I still think that. But I do think, and I think that on a first reading... Uh, reading them in publishing order is good um, for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, but I, I, I've kind of gotten less of a, less snobby, and I think that there is benefit to also reading them in chronological order. Uh, but yeah, I would never agree that that's the correct order. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't ever say that it's the correct order either, personally. Um Chris, now that now that we're more than halfway through this series, how do you feel about the order you've read them in so far? Uh, I've talked a little bit about this. Um, I I'm of the opinion, and I'm not sure this is going to change over the course of the next three books that we have yet to finish. Uh, but I am right now of the opinion that it's very helpful to read *The Magician's Nephew* first because I feel like it sets an interesting tone, and I feel like it gives a backdrop. Uh, mm. theologically and cosmologically to a lot of the goings-on in Narnia that I think is really helpful to go through it with um, if you're an adult reader. 
And that's, As an adult that's, reader, I yeah. can at least appreciate that. But at the same time, you're also saying people should watch episode one yeah, at yeah. all. I was, I was waiting um, for the... For, before, <laughs> before they watch four, five, well, and six. I was waiting for the Star Wars scene to come up. We have Every time we do a guest episode, we have to bring up Star Wars and talk about it for some reason. Well, I'm perfectly happy to not talk at any length about the order of the books, other than to say that I disagree with you, Chris, okay. but we can still be friends, Every, so it's fine. <laughs> I appreciate that. Every Everybody does. Uh, anyway, so we have some talking points that we want to get into, I think. The, you're, you're looking over my notes from the movie that we watched two days ago. Okay, I don't, we... I don't want to, I don't want to get <laughs> yeah. into the film until, yeah. until April Lynn wants to get into the film, because this yes. was her request to bring up some things from the film. Yes. Or at least yeah, one Yeah, and I feel bad that you watched it, because I haven't, I didn't actually rewatch it, I just remember one specific scene. Uh, well, let's just launch right into it, since you brought it up. Yeah. Let's go for it. Uh... Well, two two things. One is they raise everybody's age quite a bit uh, in order to have a romantic kiss scene at the end. <laughs> kissy, kissy. Which is definitely not anywhere in the book and is kind of unnecessary, but also kind of sweet, I guess. Yeah, would have C.S. Lewis rolling in his grave for sure. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, especially because when you when the research I've done into different timelines suggests that Caspian is the same age as Susan, which is like 14. Yeah, I pulled it up on Narnia web and they said according to a timeline of Narnia history, which I couldn't get to because the page link was broken, but it, they are saying that Caspian and Susan would both be 13, yeah. which is not too young to be kissing. But definitely wouldn't be any sort of, like, romantic love scene. It would be this awkward, like, you're cute. Oh, you're cute, too. Should we kiss? I don't know. That's kind of weird. And it would be very sloppy and awkward and would not be accompanied by sweeping epic music yes yeah uh i thought the kiss scene was awkward for and i because i feel like in the movie it was undeserved for the same way that uh oh, yeah. spoilers for a star wars movie that came out two years ago uh in the same way that in uh the last oh no spoilers <laughs> oh you haven't seen them blah, blah, blah. no i haven't seen anything since well, the first of the last trilogy how dare you star Chris? wars movies okay well i won't go into it but the pe- spoiler something happens that is unearthed uh the people who know what i'm talking about know what i'm talking about yeah and that's, yes there there are things that are not they don't have a, an emotional payoff mm-hmm. that is deserved got it mm. anyway um so kristen you as always are prepared for this you have some flashcards about themes in the book because we like to go through and kind of not necessarily talk about the storyline so much as pre- recurring themes and motifs and just ideas that it presents usually. Yeah. So, what do I you... mean, we've kind of, every episode's format kind of takes us through every plot element in each chapter. So it's yeah. it's nice to have a moment to reflect back and look at overarching themes. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a couple of things that stood out to me after, okay, so this is the first book that I have gone back and reread a couple of chapters from Whoa. after finishing the book. Whoa. So mm-hmm. this image stood out to me a lot. When the kids first get to Narnia, Edmund describes being on the island like being shipwrecked like pirates. 
And then we come to the end of the book where Aslan reveals that the Telmarines came to Narnia as pirates who were shipwrecked on an island on Earth and found their way through one of the few remaining connections between the worlds. Hmm, Interesting. I did not pick up on that. I didn't either until I went back and reread it because I was trying to get my nephew to be quiet. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't pick up on that either. That's, yeah. So I found it as an interesting moment of like reflection Mm -hmm. where we have the kids coming to Narnia with just this completely different experience. And it's one you kind of touched on in the last episode, Chris, of like, they're coming to Narnia as children twice, mm-hmm. getting to grow up in Narnia and have this very different experience that any of the adults we've seen previously in the series, like Uncle Andrew, um, who get into Narnia, have this very different view, mm-hmm. like a very different experience. Uncle Andrew is like buried and planted like a tree by talking animals mm-hmm. um, in The Magician's Nephew. And so we have these Telmarines who are pirates who've come into Narnia who seem to be like splitting the difference between the hugely negative adult experience of Uncle Andrew and the hugely positive child experience of the kids. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was this one more little connection point Mm -hmm. of the symbolism there with the uh, idea of being pirates. Yeah, which... Apparently C.S. Lewis didn't have a high opinion of pirates either. It's like he just... I mean, they're pirates. Yeah, they they, they, they did some things right. He wrote this before Pirates of the Caribbean came out and like (laughs) pirates became fetishized. Just a few years. Yeah, Uh, I, as a complete aside, I um, did have a phase, uh, an adult phase of a couple years in my late 20s uh, when I was really, really into pirates. And... Like the history of, of actual piracy, and, and listened to a couple of podcasts and read a couple books on the the golden age of piracy, uh, and yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff and worth looking into. Are I you gonna say. Are you gonna tell us about how pirate ships were democratic? Uh, that you have you have two emergences of <laughs> you, you you have two times in in you know basically the the history of man that uh, something like actual democracy uh emerges uh you know in a big way you have ancient greece and the democracy of athens and then you have nothing for 1600 years until you get to pirates in the caribbean and they bring back a true democracy and there's a lot of historians that credit them with inspiring uh the founding fathers to you know basically create america as a uh, as a voice of the people and that kind of thing. Anyway, we won't go into the politics of the situation, <laughs> but uh, and then they ended up in Narnia. Yes. Yep. Um, Somehow, and yeah. they became a, a monarchy. Yeah. Just Lewis County Beast Merch is the name of all pirates here, and I just want to say they did a couple things right. <laughs> this anyway. Um, this is not a podcast. <laughs> this is not a podcast. This is not a pirate apologist podcast. It is not. No, <laughs> not this week. Um, anyway. So, Kristen, continue. Take me away from this topic. No, I'm, I I just want to give April Lynn the, the chance if, if there was anything specific that stood out to you or a theme or, or a topic. Um, I can, on on the, In the, the book as a whole. And, yeah. Oh, anything. Yeah. Um, I usually use my notes as a backup in case we get stuck somewhere and don't have anything to talk about. But that was one I was excited to talk about. 
So I know you uh, have told me that every episode you have a feminist rant. So let's get into the feminist rant. (laughs) That's the first topic on my notes is uh, women and their portrayal in this book. Yes, the women and their portrayal in this book. I have had in, okay, so going back to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we have Lucy and Susan being um, like honored in this accompanying Aslan to his death moment. Mm -hmm. But then also through that being removed to a um, a motherly nursing healing role by going Mm -hmm. with Aslan to the witch's house in avoiding the entire battle. It's when they come back that Aslan kills the witch and the battle is over. And so the girls have been protected from participating in this battle that the boys had to fight in. And the same thing happens in this book. Where Aslan shows up, gets Bacchus, Bacchus and his wild women, who the girls wouldn't have felt safe around if Aslan hadn't been there. And they are taken off to heal the land. While the boys are left to go deal with the hag and the werewolf. They're left to go deal with the threat of the white witch. They're left to go deal with the threat of Mraz and the Telmarine army. They're left to deal with all of that without Aslan without the girls and the girls are just whisked away and so it's just it is it is almost like moment for moment scene for scene the same exact thing that happened in Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe where the girls are taken away to go heal the land with Aslan or to accompany him as he heals the land and so I I don't know I just I really liked the way in the movie they took out the whole Aslan healing the land scene and like Susan got to be there fighting and leading the archers in the charge. Because we have Lucy going off to war in The Horse and His Boy, which we've already read. She goes to war with her brothers and Susan is the one who stays behind to watch the castle while they're going to fight the Calmer- the the Calmarine army. The Calmarines. The Calmarines. Uh-huh. The, the Kellerman. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. The Kellerman. The Kellerman. Whatever. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so I just, I had so much hope after reading The Horse and His Boy that, like, one of the girls would get to be a strong female non- protective mothery healer role so there there you go there's my rant this book failed (laughs) thanks c.s lewis for giving me such strong female characters to look into to look up to yeah yeah well i think it's so i think that there's kind of two sides to how they're portrayed um and a lot of it comes down to like i haven't read any of the c.s lewis like in-depth biographies i've read little bits here and there and i've watched some of the films um but you know, he's in a all-male profession, surrounded by all-male colleagues. Um, so probably didn't, and, you know, from what I know, didn't have a very high opinion of women in general until he met his to-be wife. Um, and, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. It, it they The women are kept out of harm's way. But at the same time, um, they're not treated as helpless, um, in the moment where uh, they meet um, Trumpkin, you know, Susan is the second one to prove to him that, you know, they're worth taking seriously. That they're not just innocent children, uh, that they are, in fact, high kings and high queens to be reckoned with. You know, Susan 
soundly shows off her archery expertise. Um, and then Lucy shows that, uh, you know, a nasty looking wound that Trumpkin doesn't want to show her because it's not a sight for young girls to see, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't even flinch when she sees it other than to be overcome with compassion and then heal him. You know, he does treat them with some degree of respect as, you know, young women who have some metal to them and can handle some of the challenges that are in front of them. And and, and that being said, too, I think that Lucy and Susan are kind of interesting counterparts to one another. But that that's not really a, a feminist discussion, more uh, more of a character discussion in general about the four children. Uh, it's also noticeable that they're the only women other than the brief mentions of Queen, whatever her face is. Jadis? No. Oh, oh yeah, she's mentioned oh. too. And then there's the hag. Pruna uh, But all the mm-hmm. other women who appear are uh, either evil. Uh, no, no, they're all evil, actually. Yeah. yeah. There's the queen who maybe isn't evil, but is is forgettable and... Well, in, in, in the chapter that introduces Queen Prunaprismia, it specifically says that Caspian realizes more why he doesn't like her, and it's because she doesn't like him. Yeah. Okay, so Pr- Prunaprismia, which is a terrible name, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's her. There's the mention of Jadis and the attempted sorcery to resurrect her. Uh, terrible idea. And then the hag. And that's And it. the Maynads. Bacchus's wild oh. women. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Okay, so there's And then the, the fat-legged gr- schoolgirls. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Don't be schoolgirls with fat legs. Yeah, okay. At the, at the end, there is, there's a school teacher, too. Yeah. I think that there are some women near the end, but they're all incidental characters. Um, but all the of nurse! These... You're calling her incidental? <laughs> oh, okay. You're, no, you're Sorry. right. Sorry. I'm just... No, that, no your that's point, helping. Your point is valid. But also, like... Yeah, there are a few more women than I had taken note of. Um, and the nurse is... Yeah, other than the nurse, none of them has a major role in any of the events. Yeah, Which and the nurse the film is just a, is not really a heroine either. She's a female because she's a nurse. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore the appropriate gender to be the caretaker for a young boy, a young prince. And the appropriate gender to be the teller of the hall tales that he is supposed to be um, yep. getting in trouble for learning about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think somewhat a product of his time when, when C.S. Lewis wrote these books. But um, and also it's interesting to see how he does give them some degree of honor and respect. Uh, but. Yeah, I agree with you. It's also frustrating. Um, and his contemporary, uh, his, his peer, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, includes some women who are quite badass in his yeah. books, which are written oh, yeah. about the same time. So really, he doesn't have any excuse. Uh, absolutely. I mean, especially um, we have recently been rewatching through the Lord of the Rings series, the movies. Um, we watched the Two Towers most recently, we still have to watch The Return of the King, but just, like, the character of Eowyn... It, You're trying. I'm sorry, you, you know, I'm sorry. I'm, I, don't, I just don't want to dive into Lord of the Rings right now, because I'll, <laughs> I'll go off on a, on a tangent. Uh-huh. But Eowyn is such a, like, specifically... And she's the one that's often held up because she is kind of the strongest female character in The Lord of the Rings. But uh, now you're making me want to actually reread those books. 
I kind of want to reread them, but I don't know. Like We've joked for a long time that that's what we have to do when we end this podcast. We have to immediately jump into chapter by chapter Lord of the Rings. (laughs) That would take you a million years. It would take so long. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The Lord of the Rings, my experience reading those books, I was 13, 14, and my mom was getting her master's degree at a college... Um, a couple, uh, like an hour drive from here in Van Nuys. And so my mom was getting her master's degree and I would go with her to the university when she had late night classes and my dad was going to be busy. Yeah, I sat on the stairs between the third and fourth floor of the building her (laughs) class was in. And I sat on the landing between those floors reading those books. And I was such a weak reader like I was not good at reading I didn't enjoy reading I would listen to the audiobook and I would read along in the book because the audiobook I would get distracted if it just played but the book I couldn't read without falling asleep it is it is long and dense so I didn't read the whole trilogy until the movies came out I was determined before these movies come out I'm going to read all the books uh, or at least each movie. Maybe I read each book before each movie. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't think we even own a set of those books. But anyway. We do. We own Anyway, Hobbit. this is the Chronically Narnia podcast, not yeah. the Chronically <laughs> Lord of the Rings yes. podcast. Yeah. So. We also talk about Lord of the Rings a lot in this podcast. <laughs> well, we talk I mean, about Tolkien it, a lot in general. It makes general. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the influences and the arguments mm-hmm. and the fact that they notoriously did not like each other's style of writing fantasy. Yeah. It's a thing. Uh, anyway, Kristen, what do we have for us? Um, my other notes were about the symbolism of the trees. And we've kind of touched on Lucy, and I wanted to go back to Lucy and her calls to the trees. Oh, interesting. I don't think I thought much about the trees at all, so let's see what you have to say. Throughout all of the books, I feel like every single book has had at least one paragraph where C.S. Lewis just went on this whimsical, reflective moment of trees. Dude's really into trees. He's really into trees. (laughs) And so, like, in The Magician's Nephew, Aslan is singing the song of creation, and the stars are singing with him, and the trees come up, and the trees are the first thing that Mm -hmm. the party there sees growing and becoming created, besides the stars, in Narnia. And there's this moment of trees and all of the talking creatures think that Uncle Andrew is a kind of tree and they try to plant him in the ground like a tree. Mm. And so then we have in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the the caution about the trees. Some of even the trees are on her side. Mm-hmm. And... Um, well, it's also like the, you know, the first place that they come into in Narnia is in the middle of a forest. Yes. The first experience they have of Narnia is cold and pokey tree branches. Mm-hmm. And then... And then um, we have the beavers who are like their first, you know, you know allies in Narnia who, you know... Who live in a home made out of trees. Trees. Mm-hmm. Wood. Uh, the beaver's dam. Yeah. Um, so just like all of this symbolism, when we have um, in The Horse and His Boy, we have him riding through the trees and not we have sorry him has a name 
we have Shasta riding through the trees after he's made it all the way to Arkenland. And it's in the trees that he loses his path following the Arkenlanders back to the castle because he doesn't actually know how to ride a horse. And he mm-hmm. wanders off the wrong direction and ends up meeting Aslan as Aslan guides him over the mountains into Narnia. And so, like... But he meets Jesus for the first time in the trees. In the trees. Coming, having come out of a land and from a land where which is very barren and very desert-like and treeless. Mm-hmm. Yes. So just, like, this recurring image throughout the previous three books that we've read of the trees being this symbol of life and entrance into Narnia and birth and all of these different kind of ideas Mm -hmm. that the trees bring forward. Mm -hmm. When we get to Narnia this time with the kids, they fight through the trees. We forgot about the tree and uh, magician's nephew with the apples. Oh yeah, of course. The tree and the magician's nephew with the apple, like the whole tree of life metaphor within the garden and bringing that tree mm-hmm. back to protect Narnia. The tree that grows from that apple is the one that protects Narnia for a thousand years or un- until the witch finally gets in. And the one on Earth gets cut down and made into a wardrobe. Which is the wardrobe through which the kids get. So right. trees. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of trees. Yeah. And so within this book, we have the kids showing up on this island. They have to climb through the trees up this stream that they find in order to find the ruins of Caraparavel. They find the orchard full of apple trees. So we've got a recurring image of apple trees. And um, we have this moment, and getting back to my actual point, which was this character moment for Lucy where she stands up and and walks out into the trees and calls to the trees and is mm-hmm. trying to wake up, wake up. And she feels like the moment just, she just missed it. Mm-hmm. Like this moment of intense, magical, like just awakening in the trees. In the same way that she just misses it when she doesn't follow Aslan on her own and stays with her siblings. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a great moment in when Aslan calls Lucy a lioness mm-hmm. where we kind of have this like, I'm not going to tell you what would have happened if you had followed me, but we almost give Lucy's character a little more weight where if Lucy had gone on her own, maybe she still would have been able to go lead the Narnians without the others or bringing the others along after her but either way like she 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 i I want the i want what would have happened but anyway (laughs) we don't trees trees and lucy your thoughts uh well i don't have any thoughts on trees that's a really interesting um i mean trees are great (laughs) i like trees um and i can see where i mean there is obviously a parallel to you know trees are the the downfall of humanity in the bible and the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life and all that um and i can see where trees being i mean trees are large and tall and uh along with mountains one of the most obvious signs of creation in nature or uh, maybe not obvious but most easily visible you know you've got mountains trees ocean those are those are the big ones right um and of those trees are the most living so um yeah i don't know trees i like i like that that observation but i did want to talk about lucy um Mm -hmm. and also just uh faith 
um, mm-hmm. as it is reflected in the four characters. Um, okay. I was thinking about, you know, the difference between when Aslan presents himself to Lucy and then how all the other children react. I was trying to think, you know, is this a, a parallel to the parable of the four sowers or the, the, the sower and the four seeds and the four soils in the Bible? Um, and it is, I don't think it is quite. Um, I couldn't really come up with a direct parallel, so I don't think that was the intent. Uh, mm-hmm. But they all did have a very distinct uh, response to Aslan and to faith in Aslan. You know, Lucy's is, you know, she has no problem seeing him right away. The first time that he chooses to present himself to them, Lucy is the one who sees him. She says that she sees him. Uh she doesn't follow him and gives in to peer pressure. Uh, or I didn't even occur to her that she could, without the, the permission of her siblings, go follow him on her own. Um, but, you know, she's kind of presented as, and even, you know, she is the main comforter of Aslan in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, she's kind of presented as this pure, innocent uh, you know, she's the first one that discovers the wardrobe in the first place um, and gets to Narnia in the first place. She's presented as being the one of pure faith um, in a lot of ways. Um, and Susan, as I was always saying earlier, Susan is kind of the exact opposite. She's portrayed as always the practical one. Um, you know, she's always the one who's saying, oh, you know, we really should do it this way and this way. And why are you doing that? And um, objecting to any of the kind of outlandish and going, oh, the men um, <laughs> responses to when the boys are doing things that are heroic and dumb. Uh, or, <laughs> um, and not only is she not able to see Aslan until the very end, uh, but she admits that she did even believe that it was him and chose to ignore that. Um which, ah, uh, I can't talk about other books, but uh, in the future, this will come back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 that attitude that Susan has will continue. And um, yeah, that's really interesting. And then Edmund uh, completely redeems himself from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, by instead of not believing Lucy and being a little dumb twit, says, hey, she was right last time. Uh, I'm going to believe her this time and not be an idiot. Uh, But then, you know, again, doesn't doesn't go along with her because everyone else says nay. Uh, And Peter in specific, who's the the leader of their little merry band, says no. So they get outvoted. Uh, And then Peter's an interesting one because he, even though he says, yeah, I know Lucy was right last time, but yeah, we've, we've, we've got to be practical. About High King Peter the Magnificent? <laughs> yeah, he, he in the end also chooses, like, along with Susan, he chooses what's practical and worldly. Uh, what, what makes the most sense, as opposed to Lucy uh, and then Edmund, who are willing to look ridiculous for the sake of Aslan, the lion, that they all know that they can trust mm-hmm. uh, and ha- does magic and it's better to follow him. But maybe they've forgotten from the last time they were in Narnia. I don't know. 
So that's, I think, is a good uh, transition point to a thing that I wanted to bring up, which is a theme that I think exists in this book. Um, this is going to be a weird discussion, but uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. But I think I have something here. <laughs> uh, while And this came to me while we were watching the film, and I'm glad we did, because I, as we were watching the film, um, I made a bunch of notes on it. Um, some of them are very silly. One of the things that I wrote down uh, was... Edmund's flashlight as phallic imagery. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> and I, I wrote that down as a joke because we talked about doing kind of a running commentary track on the film to release on our Patreon. Um, just to have okay. like, you know, us in the background telling jokes in a very riff tracks kind of way. Uh, but I kept mulling that over in my head. And I, I came to a place where I think, um, you know, there is a lot of imagery in the book uh, that deals with, you know, coming of age and puberty and mm -hmm. uh, the children becoming adults. And I feel like uh, this is kind of repeated a lot of ways. In the beginning of the book, it's very, very direct, where they're having, they're having all these conversations about, uh, you know, feeling like kids and people treating them like kids, even though they've lived here for 20 years and they're all like very mm -hmm. much adults. And they have this weird disconnect between their physical bodies and what their minds are telling them. Right. Um, and then throughout the course of the book, we have different moments with all the kids, except maybe Lucy, because Lucy's a bit too young. But with all the other ones who are trying to come into themselves as adults, like in, in both body and in mind. Well, and like, it's even a theme in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Susan is constantly being this mothering figure and talking like a grown-up. Mm -hmm. And yep. if you like... And they complain about it. Well, yeah. Like, if you want to get into, like, you know, this this imagery of sexuality, we have, uh, you know, Peter and Edmund who both have very phallic images who have... Peter has his sword and Edmund has his flashlight. And then Susan has a bow, which is, you know... Yonic. Yonic. And Lucy has a chalice, which is very, very classic Yonic imagery. And so how they deal with these things and, like, find these symbols of their adulthood and find the symbols of who they are supposed to be, whether in this world or Earth, and uh, how they're dealing with that, I think, I think there's something to be explored there. There could be. I mean, I feel like this is... A different direction than we've taken any of these characters too because we've mm. briefly touched on their coming of age but mm. like there is definitely i mean for lucy i feel like she's always been lucy the valiant where she that's her title as queen to me and so the idea that i i got really frustrated in lion the witch in the wardrobe rereading it being like what like why didn't she get a sword why didn't why did she get this like med medicine where she's going to be like this nurse figure mm -hmm. like why is she you being need a healer in every party there's got to be a healer in every party it could have been edmund it could have been peter mm -hmm. but anyway um yeah no like i definitely agree with you that there's symbolism and imagery there that we have not talked about or touched on at all mm -hmm. um i don't know how much more there is to dig into it than what you said I don't know. The idea of, like, Edmund losing his flashlight, I think, is what you're digging at eventually. No, I'm not necessarily digging that. I'm just, I'm just using it as, a, as an avenue to get to character transitions in this book and how they leave Narnia versus how they come into it. Because I, the more I think about it, the more I think this is very much a coming-of-age story for them. Um, 
I would well, say. especially because this is the the story where we find out, hey, Susan and Peter are now too old to go back to Narnia. Correct, and I feel like that can tie into it. And I wanted to bring that up as well, and possibly discuss reasons why we think that is. Obviously, if something comes up in the next three books about that, I don't know. But, um, well, according on... according to what what they said from their conversation with Aslan, they're too old. Yes. Why? Why are they too old? Because we were in uh, the last episode, we talked about this a little bit and brought up the idea that maybe it's a faith thing and, you know, they're they're getting too worldly and they're too kind of, they're getting set in their ways as adults and are unable to see the magic as they once did. But I'm, you know, I feel like there could be a ton of other explanations. So Yeah, that's the if... one that I've always kind of went with is, you know, Narnia is a, you know, the idea of magic existing in our world is a hard one for people to buy, especially adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a classic theme for magical things to only be seen by children or adults who are very uh, childlike in their views of life, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and that otherwise adults are too, like you said, set in their ways too far removed from uh, make-believe and fairy tales to be able to accept it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I almost think that that even ties into why the other children aren't able to see Aslan at first, too, um, is that they've all gotten a little bit older. Uh, well, they've always been older, you know, and, uh, you know, from the beginning, it was Lucy who was the one who was most able to believe in the magic of Narnia. Uh, and relate to it. Um, and I guess this is what, like a year in Earth time after their last? Correct. One year. Okay. So Lucy's still pretty young. She's like, what, nine, ten? Yeah. And this is her first time going to board- boarding school. I believe she's nine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So she's not, you know, she hasn't hit those preteen years yet. She's still a child, you know, getting mm-hmm. closer to adulthood for sure. Um, but really hasn't entered that world of responsibility quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think that's a large part of it, is that idea that adulthood carries with it, for the most part, this inability to believe in the supernatural and the mystical, because it's not practical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We do, like, and we do have this idea of logic and practicality, presented even in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy is telling them that there's a a magical land inside the wardrobe, and they go to the professor, and they're saying, like, Mm -hmm. she's, and he goes, well, don't they teach logic in schools? Like, which of your (laughs) siblings is more likely to lie about this? Edmund? Okay. Is Lucy always truthful? She's always been before? Okay. Well, then, logically... (laughs) She's right. going to be the one that you should trust. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's this like relational element where they have this connection to each other too that might be part of this, this faith of like Lucy is the little one. They think that she's childish and they've been taught in this world on earth that logic would dictate the thing that is least magical, the thing that is most in line with science, the thing that, you know, there can't mm-hmm. be a magical land in the wardrobe, regardless of how 
earnest and honest Lucy is. And that logically, children are more prone to telling tales. And even though they know that that's not her character, uh, they still fall back on that. She's the littlest, and therefore we should follow the oldest, High Peter. Or yeah, Hiking and they're Peter. putting the logic of the situation above, like, the relationship there. Like, mm-hmm. their relationship is is being strained in a way that it shouldn't be. Like, I mean, like, as siblings, they should be there to support Lucy, <laughs> like, and to right. believe her and to, you know, believe that Narnia exists with her because she is the honest one. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, again, looking at we have a, a goal. We need to be goal-oriented here, and their focus on that goal blinds them to what's actually going on in front of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Spinning off of that topic of magic and just the way that they approach magic, um, I found an interesting shift in this book in the view of magic and the use of magic. Um and it, it struck me more through the way that it was handled in the movie than the way it was handled in the book. Because in the book, there are two, three main um, magic users, and that is Aslan and Bacchus and Cornelius. And then there's the, like the uh, dwarf. Oh, I guess the hag does, not the dwarf. The dwarf yeah. Yeah. cajoles the hag into doing it, or I guess he probably doesn't have to convince her very much (laughs) yeah in the movie they remove all magic except aslan and the hag so that any magic in the movie is just coming from good aslan or bad hag do they remove the trees as well no the trees still exist like the the trees are still alive and they're but like they're not implementing magic they're not creating new fruit for people to eat and things like that they are attacking the soldiers with their roots and their branches Mm -hmm. but like in in the book there's so much more like and in the book series as a whole there's so much more magic being used by other people and there's a moment in it was specifically the magician's nephew where jadis talks about how magic is a royal bloodline characteristic like that she has magic because she's royal and she's saying like oh your your magician your uncle must be of noble like he must be an emperor on your world because he's used magic and Mm -hmm. so we have this equation between royal equals magical or magic magical equals royal at least Maybe not the other way around. But then here in this book at the beginning when we introduce Caspian to Cornelius, Cornelius will not teach Caspian anything about magic except for the fundamentals and like the actual just theory of it because it is not right for a king to study such things. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And so this is such a radical shift in like what we've seen of magic in Narnia. And how we've seen magic handled throughout Narnia, like Lewis has completely done a heel turn here on the way that he's handling magic in this book. Like we still have Bacchus, we have Aslan. Considering this was written years before The Magician's Nephew, the heel turn is the other way around, but. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And so he he seems to start the series with an approach of saying, "Oh, hey, there's, you know, there's good magic." You in... mean he finishes the series? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> he starts writing with the approach of, uh, you know, there's good magic and bad magic, and it's a thing that can corrupt, but like there's good uses for it, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually gets to this point where he's just like, "Yeah, no, magic's pretty much bad unless God's doing it." Um, yep, that's that's all there is to it. Like, you're either Jesus or, like, you're evil. Well, except that Cornelius uses magic. Yeah, Cornelius uses... No, I'm saying the magician's nephew being written. Coming to magician's nephew, magician's nephew being written later, Mm -hmm. we have this shift to Aslan is the creator, and then Jadis uses magic, is royal, has power, is therefore evil Mm -hmm. in the way that she uses that power. Uncle Andrew is the closest thing to stupid evil, if that was a character-like <laughs> category. Mm-hmm. He he rolls stupid evil as opposed to chaotic. Um, <laughs> chaotic and dumb. Um, I don't remember. Is he evil? He He's not a nice dude. He's not a nice dude. He tries to, like, his whole, the whole reason the kids go to get, like, get pulled into the world between the wood between the worlds, mm-hmm. and eventually end up bringing Jadis to Narnia on accident. Mm-hmm. And all of that is because Uncle Andrew is too scared to try his magical rings and kidnaps basically one of them and sends the other one to go rescue her. I had forgotten about the magical rings. I haven't read that one in a while. So yeah. you you all are all ahead of me on that. <laughs> um. But yeah, like it seems... Writing style-wise, as Lewis wrote the books, he got further and further away from this idea of magic being something that is neutral and can be used for good and bad, or that there is a separate deep magic that Mm -hmm. has a root beyond the magic that the witch used, into this idea that, like, okay, like, anyone who's using magic for any kind of gain at all is evil, or tainted, or corrupted. Yeah. And in the process of falling. Yeah. So, hmm. I don't know. It's an interesting shift. We'd have to dive much more into the like the character of Lewis and his personal views to, to really attack that, which we don't have the time for. Um, however, I, I did want to bring this up because, as Kristen said in the film, they take a lot of the magic out. And one of my other film notes here was just, uh, no Bacchus equals crime. Um, <laughs> and I was very upset that they took... Bacchus out of the film completely like nobody even names him um and why do, why why do we think they did that like it because they they were pretty faithful other than that like they left pretty much all the major scenes in they they did they left all the other characters in aside from the nurse in the beginning who has like a page worth of stuff but Bacchus has several pages and several different scenes uh where he does all kinds of stuff he's the one that frees the river god uh at the end and he has this big character moment so and why... does it while in the midst of wild, drunken revelry. Yes. I think that's so... the main... I mean, Bacchus <laughs> is a god of excess. Yes. Um, and I think that putting that into a children's movie uh, for modern audiences mm-hmm. would have been... Uh, problematic. Tricky. Problematic. <laughs> Difficult to explain. Um, I think that within the context of the book, uh, there are some really interesting potential reasons I, I think Bacchus is kind of representative of the the feasting um, that 
you know, from a theological point of view, you know, Jesus talks about feasting while the bridegroom is here. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, that Bacchus kind of represents that, let us celebrate and be joyful because Aslan has returned and is making all things right. Um, and we should celebrate while he's here. Uh, but getting into that in the midst of a, whatever, two hour and a half, two hour long movie for children about talking animals and fighting uh, <laughs> would probably be, have been a bit much. And I, yeah. I feel you. I, I, I just wanted him to show up at the end and just have a scene or something. Like I just, you know, he could have in the background for all I care. Like, you just, you they, loved him so much. <laughs> I, I love these characters. I love Bacchus. Like I loved Corin so much in uh, Horse and His Boy. Like, and I'm still know. surprised. I am shocked that you didn't just fall in love with Reepicheep in this book. Because, okay, because Reepicheep <laughs> is is uh, very noble and he's very chivalrous and he's always just like there, you know, looking to defend somebody's honor. Corin's just a rowdy boy. Like he just likes he just likes to fight, and he's just you know he's the one he's the first one into the mosh pit. Like yeah, punch me in the face sounds like a good time. Like <laughs> and and just there's something so pure about that you know just love of chaos um that that just stands out from the rest of the book which is why i appreciate him as so opposed much. to reap a cheap who is just like lawful good yes he's very he's the paladin like he is like he's right there um so yeah what what else do you have Kristen? i was gonna ask april Lynn who her favorite character in this book is oh yeah go since for it. you're talking about bacchus yeah. oh my favorite character oh man uh, so if I wasn't going to name myself, I, I mean, Reaper Jeep's pretty great. Um, he, he has some pretty great one-liners and I love, I love that he's like, yeah, send me in there. And, and Peter's like, but you know, I, I, I don't want to scare him or, you know, some people are afraid of mice and, and we don't want to put them at a disadvantage. I'm like, that's such a, a diplomatic way of saying no, uh, even mm -hmm. if it is slightly dishonest. Especially because there's going to be a bear there instead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do like the, the bulgy bear. Uh, yeah. The bulgy and bear. And a giant. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't I, a Favorite character. I mean, Aslan. Wow. Kind, wow. kind, of, okay. kind of a classic. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but Aslan's <laughs> Jesus. This is a running joke in our, uh, in our show. Where for, I don't know if we've gotten to it in this book, but for a while, every single episode, we said that line at some point. Um, Aslan's Jesus. Wait, what? Yeah. It's a really, it's a I terrible running had, joke. It comes from no, Steve. Had no idea. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. We actually did uh, kind of go on a tangent in this book for a couple chapters about, you know, kind of milling on whether or not uh, Lucy is representative of the Holy Spirit. Because I think we... we we kind of had a few things there that could lend themselves to that stupid theory. Um, but I think the, the primary reason for that was this moment of her tugging the others. Oh, Aslan is there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this moment of like her calling to the trees, awake, awake, She's awake. always this small, insistent voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just kind of the way that she, she comes and, and especially the moment where Aslan t names her a lioness. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You are so I did want to talk a little bit about that scene. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Um, so, and I, I even wrote that quote down. Um, well, no, not that specific quote. Her assumption is that Aslan is here. He's going to fix everything. 
and then he he very firmly in, informs her, no, you're you're gonna have to be brave on your own, actually, um, and do some hard things. And she says, "Oh dear," said Lucy. "I was so pleased at finding you again, and I thought you'd let me stay, and I thought you'd come roaring in and frighten all the enemies away, just like last time. And now everything is going to be horrid." And it it actually reminded me of this line from a uh, a song that I heard this year, a kind of a kind of a Christmas Advent song, uh, where it says. Um, the song's called Why Does God Have to Look So Human? And Ooh. it says he was supposed to look like justice and instead he looks like love. And it just reminds me of over and over again, this theme that, you know, that God doesn't act in ways that we expect him to, that uh, Christianity doesn't have the message that we want it to, that when Jesus showed up on the scene, he was not what they were expecting and he did not do what they wanted him to do. Uh, which was chase away all the evil and reestablish the nation of Israel. And, uh, and that was that. Um, and so I, I was kind of reflecting on that Lucy's kind of realization that, oh, this is not going to look like what I thought it was going to look like. Um, and it's not going to be so easy and, I'm going to have to learn to be brave. And then Aslan, in, in that moment you mentioned where he, he breathes on her and gives her strength. And he says, now you're a lioness. Uh, and that, that was probably my favorite mo moment in the book. Mm -hmm. um, him, him giving her that power and that acknowledgement of her fierceness. Uh, despite the fact that she doesn't actually do anything fierce. <laughs> Uh, for the rest of the book, uh, but does have to face her siblings and tell them, hey, I'm going to go without you. Um, as, as a nine-year-old girl or eight-year-old girl, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go my own way if you won't follow me because Aslan told me to, and I trust him. Um, that's, that's pretty gutsy. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. he doesn't so. say, I'll, I'll walk with you. Like, he's off in the distance. Um, she's following from, she'd be following from distance and he doesn't guarantee like, I'm, I'm going to come back and get you if you slip. Yeah. He's not a safe lion. Yeah. We've established that. Um, so I know since you brought up the, the idea of God not acting, you know, how we expect him to and him not coming as justice, but as love, I know Steve's going to be listening to this and yelling at his, uh, you know, listening device. If I don't, if I, if I don't bring this idea up, um, are the Telmarines the Roman Empire, and are the Narnians the Jews? Sorry, you're both, I, I you're thought, both, you're both <laughs> looking at me. I, I have no opinion on the matter. Uh, I definitely hadn't thought in terms of historical parallels. So I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we talked a little bit about how. Narnia has been this tool of escape mm -hmm. for the kids where like the trauma of war and being sent away from their family and they went to Narnia this place where they didn't have to go to school and they could always like they had Aslan there and they could win all of the wars and they could be great kings and queens and have power and authority where they're just children at the whims of a very violent world on mm. on earth. 
and how it's a completely different environment for them to be in Narnia and, and have all of the things that they needed and wanted, like power and control and... Well, eventually. Just, yeah. But they, but they certainly didn't feel safe in Narnia the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, but like, it was kind I, of I think that that's, parallel. I think that that's paralleling their own... Uh, like struggle with mortality that they as children in in wartime mm-hmm. are experiencing in a way that they are too young to have to experience like yeah, but absolutely. like then this book is coming out in a in a post blitz like England and so this is a moment where we even have the redemption of the Telmarines, and I mentioned in one of the episodes about how this is very much kind of paralleling this idea of like extending love and grace to those who you were previously at war with, who you were previously mm-hmm. like in conflict with in a war, like in a literal war in Narnia and in maybe a literal war on this side of the wardrobe in yeah, the world yeah. in World War Two, and like that kind of parallel and so i mean we've talked a lot about narnia being england as a quick aside this side of the wardrobe would have been an amazing name for this podcast as well but (laughs) but redo just throw it all out start over start it over Uh and this time you can read the books in the correct order (laughs) uh narnia's england well i mean and we've talked about that a lot where Mm -hmm. there is there's a lot of this idea of Narnia potentially being England in a symbolic way. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the heavy-handed analogies that Lewis is well known for, um, I think I think that it's it's fair to say that it's it is an analogy for for wartime mm-hmm. and children who have more power than they realize to be a tool for for peace and change, I guess and and the redemption of the Telmarines, like guiding them back to the world they came from. So I don't know what that would parallel to on earth for the kids and what that means for them and their, their futures and their, you know, actual influence on earth. But Mm -hmm. in Narnia, it really seems like they are there to, be a be a symbol for the Narnians mm-hmm. and also to guide the Telmarines who want to leave to a be- to a better place for them. Yeah. Sending them to the farm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> the old country farm down the road. Um all right, are there any themes or motifs or ideas that we haven't really talked about yet that are big in the book, do we think, or have we covered we've covered a lot april lynn you still have notes though yes uh no i think i pretty much went through all my notes my last thing is about um racism against black dwarves (laughs) well they're not actually black though are they they have they have black hair they have black hair yes they're very specifically dark haired dwarves Uh yes Um, Uh, well i mean there's plenty of Z- racism, xenophobia. I mean, but I mean that's not just in the the Narnia books. That's a trope in fantasy as a whole. 
um, that had, which I guess started around this time. Um, this, this is kind of the beginning of modern fantasy, this idea that certain races act in certain ways, uh, certain, yeah. And they can just be categorized by their race. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's something that people now are looking at and saying, okay, now how do we, how do we fix this? <laughs> mm. How do we make races not be stereotypes? Um, in all of our fantasy games and stories. Mm. Yeah. I, now I don't remember. So Cornelius, Dr. Cornelius is half dwarf, Correct. half red dwarf. Half... I think he's he's half human, half red dwarf. I believe. Okay, so he's mm. he's half good dwarf. Yes, yeah. one of the good yeah. ones. I mean, at least we don't really get into that uh, in this book. I know in *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, there's a little bit of language being like, "Well, those were the bad dwarves," and just like not even not even like classifying them by race. Just be like, "Yeah, those those are bad ones." Yeah, but even even <laughs> here though, I mean, they talk about. Um, the hags and the were wool or the and the ogres yeah. and the ogres that yeah that was the one you know saying no we don't want to we don't want to associate with those types like if that's what it's coming to no um you yeah. know that that's a very distinct moment that i picked up on um and yeah that's that's just i yeah, don't we, really know I, what to make of that i i had a whole rant about this when we when we did that chapter <laughs> where um the the scene where uh peter and edmund kind of rush in to interrupt this spell casting ritual to bring back the white witch and we kill off the werewolf and the hag and we establish later that you know even though nickabrick you know gets a proper burial and sent back to his people like you know the the other two are just thrown out like trash basically like they're not even considered worthy of of honoring in that way but we like, also have a moment there where it's like they say something about how how much of a shame it is because Nickabrick could have been a good dwarf. Yeah. And they say something to that effect of like, it's better that we don't know who killed him. Like, this is really unfortunate. He could have been a good dwarf. He could have redeemed only... his people by being one of the good ones. <laughs> yes, he could have been Ugh. one of the good ones. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. Just saying that made me feel icky. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, um, no, no, no. Like, I still wanted to stay on dwarfs, though, because we have, and this is a note that I wrote, which was just the words dwarf made. We have dwarf made armor, and we have dwarf made swords that um, are, are the first tools um and the second gifts that caspian receives from the old narnians like the first gift that he receives from the bulgy bears is honey and patter twig gives him nuts so he gets food first mm -hmm. and then his next stop is to talk to the dwarves and i believe they're red dwarves but he talks to the dwarves who are in the forge underground mm -hmm. making armor. And he gets a dwarven sword and it is of the finest quality, finer than anything that he had ever handled in the Telmarine mm. court. Like it is, it is superior in every way. And he gets the mail and the armor and the sword and they fit him for battle. And he still hasn't figured out that he is leading the Narnians to war until he meets with the centaurs and they are like, so we're ready to go to war with you. <laughs> like, mm. war? What? <laughs> yeah, wait, 
what do you mean? He goes, why are you here in armor and a sword if you're not leading us into war? Yeah, that's that's kind of dense of him. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But the dwarves as, like, the equippers and just the way that the, the dwarves are presented throughout, like, the red dwarves are, like, this strong, creative weapons creators. They're necessary for war, essentially. And then you have the black dwarves, who are the ones who the most of them die, according to Nicobrick, in all of the battles. Nicobrick is is talking a lot about how his people are taking the brunt of all of the assaults because they are willing to do anything to fight. They are willing mm-hmm. to do anything. They are willing to call on the White Witch. They are willing to trust in Caspian. They're willing to, any, any enemy of their enemy is going to fight alongside them. And so, like, the Black Dwarves have give, have got this, like, motivation to to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And so there is, like, a redeeming quality there that, that, when taken too far, creates bad dwarves. But, like, there is this, re- this potential for redemption that's, it's, it's not fulfilled, but it's acknowledged verbally by other characters. If only we could have accomplished this goal faster, Nicobrick could have been a good dwarf. Yeah, and I don't think that Nicobrick is evil. I think that Nicobrick is, well, he's suspicious, skeptical, and cynical. And, yeah, has, has let the, the cynicism overshadow hopefulness. Um, and, and going back to, you know, red dwarves versus black dwarves, and I, I think that may be the difference, is that the black dwarves... Um, are portrayed as just not believing in the hopefulness of Narnia and Aslan. Um, that they feel like they have to take matters into their own hands, whatever it takes, like you said. Um, which in his case means resorting to people who have worldly power. And mm. uh, I think that there are some parallels uh, to our own world, for sure, about how there are a lot of people who well there you go (laughs) i think i can stop there i think you get the point yeah Yeah. go down that rabbit hole um i think though that you touched on something there in that like they're willing to go do their own like where's the line there between aslan calling lucy to leave her brothers and sisters and do her own thing following aslan compared to like, the Black Dwarves who are doing their own thing in defense of Narnia. Like, the ultimate goal here on both sides is the defense of Narnia, but there is a right and a wrong way to do that presented in the book. And I think I think in a children's book that's presenting, like, a morality that's necessary in a children's book that is, like, a foundation of this kind of allegorical children's story, you have to have these kind of things. But just... Outside of the allegory and the children's story, where's the difference there besides, like, Aslan's Jesus? Where's the difference <laughs> Wait, <there>? what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that as C.S. Lewis presents it, and I, I think I agree, the difference is, you know, do the ends justify the means? And, you know, in Lucy's case, 
she is, I mean, she's, she's following the higher power, Jesus. Do the ends justify the means? Do mm-hmm. you do whatever it takes, no matter the cost, uh, to others around you and to your future? Um, do you look to whatever source of power, whether it be wholesome and good or controlling and evil? Um, you know, there, there's no doubt that w- had they been successful in summoning Jadis, bringing her back from wherever, was she dead or banished or... A great sorceress mm. like her could never truly die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so no, no doubt that she would have again, you know, reigned over Narnia and the world would have fallen into darkness and uh, you would have gotten another, a repeat of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, whole thing just starts over again. <laughs> whole thing just starts over again. <laughs> but you, you said server. something there that I really wanted to, to, like, I think that there's a difference in the control aspect like to Lucy's siblings her saying well I'm gonna go do what Aslan said is Lucy trying to be controlling but from Lucy's perspective she's giving up control to Aslan right as opposed to Nickabrick who is like I am I am out of control because my people are dying in this war and I need control so the way that I'm gonna do that is to go get people to give power you know, whether he's saying give power to me or give power to this army through the witch. But, like, he's trying to take control as opposed to Lucy who's trying to give up control. So I think I think you helped me answer that or at least resolve it a little bit. Yeah. Because I, I was struggling with that one. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. Did we solve well, lobsters it? and lollipops. Did we solve uh, <laughs> Narnia? I think we solved it. I think we did Sweet. solve it. Um, so should we should we go into our my, my segment here? Let's go into your segment, Chris. Oh, Chris has a segment. Okay. Apparently he Um, has a segment. This is a thing that I used to do in uh, the first couple of books at the end of every episode. And then Kristen... Every single episode. Kristen stopped (laughs) wanting to be married to me. So um, I have uh, coordinated off to just the review episodes of the entire book with our special guests. Where I just go in and give the book a, a rating. From one to five stars, uh, exhaustively, uh, depending on how well I think it uh, did what it set out to do. And when we used to do this with the chapters, Kristen would always give me a different thing to rate it out of. Uh, Kristen, do you have something for this book? Uh, I do. Will you please rate this out of whirly gigs? Out of whirly gigs, yes. Um, <laughs> and by the way, this is not just my thing. Like, if anybody wants to jump in and give a rating, please feel free to. Because I can never convince Kristen to actually do it. <laughs> Um, that was a running joke for a long time. Okay. Anyway, so, uh, fourth book. We're more than halfway through the series. Um, Second Which book. is fantastic. We're on the downslope, like the end is in sight. <laughs> it's been a long time. Um, gosh, I liked this one more than the previous one. I liked it more than Horse and His Boy, for sure. Shame. Horse and His uh, Boy had <laughs> such better female character representation. Uh, it, it did... It did. I just feel like... There were no wild women. There weren't wild women. I I feel like there was much more of a sense of whimsy to this. And I feel like we got to see a lot more of what Narnia is all about. Because, you know, this is the series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And I feel like that's the big, you know, failing of Horse and His Boy. Despite how, you know, good of a story it is. And I'm not saying it's bad. 
is that we didn't really get to see anything in Narnia there. Like, we go there at the very, very end. There's a brief little battle that happens. Like, we, we see the Pevensies as grown-ups. I thought but... you were reviewing Prince Caspian. <laughs> I am. <laughs> but we don't really see anything there as to what happens in Narnia and the internal, like, conflicts and struggles therein. And this is the first book that we really get a deeper sense of, I don't know, who more of the Narnians are. Like, I want I want a book that just does a flashback set into the golden age of Narnia to talk about how this land usually is. Uh, because in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we see it as this place that's been oppressed for 100 years, and then we see it come back at the very, very end. And in this one, we see it as this place that's been oppressed for 1,000 years, and it comes back at the very, very end. Um, and I guess that's yeah, just Yeah, so that this, was this... the horse and his boy. That's the golden age of Narnia right there. Yeah, which and which only we, one chapter of the entire book is in yeah, Narnia. Yeah, the rest yeah. of it's in Kalerman and Arkenland. Yeah, which is yeah. great exploring the different parts of the world. Whatever. Um, I You're like, gonna love Voyage of the Dawn Shredder. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, <laughs> but I appreciated it being set entirely in Narnia and actually having a story there uh, that that deals with a, I guess a a different sort of conflict. Uh, and we get a lot more different perspective from the Narnians about how they feel about this place and, you know, they're, you know, who the badgers are and the badgers remember things and, you know, the, the history of the bulgy bears who apparently like the have bears a hereditary office. remember things, even though yes. they're lazy and sleepy and yeah. uh, kind of ridiculous. Yeah, that's who the bears are. And I think in my whole thing of it being a, a coming of age story, not just for Caspian, but for all the Pevensies, uh, and as a journey, uh, you know, as they discover more about themselves. And, you know, Kristen brought up something really, really good in the last episode where uh, she kind of describes Narnia as being a place of learning and a mm -hmm. place where, you know, these kids go to learn things, to discover things about themselves, to grow their character and then take what they've learned back into the real world. And this is a place of development and a place of growth. And I think... Uh, hey, Edmund, don't be a jerk. <laughs> you know. And I think us getting to explore that is uh, really cool. Uh, and oh, man. I am so excited for you to meet the characters in the next book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, me too. Um, oh, no, wait. You did meet some of them because you already read The Magician's Nephew. Yes. No, never mind. I'm thinking Yeah, okay. no, no, no. Next next <laughs> book is Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah. No, I'm thinking in the wrong. You see, having the books in the wrong order just <laughs> screws me up. Um yes. no, you haven't met those characters yet and mm -hmm. it'll be cool when you do. Um uh, yeah, all that being said, um as much as I had issues with the individual chapters and I thought the pacing was terrible as in, you know, yeah. every single book the pacing is god awful. And Lewis can't pace to save his life. But other than that, um, I thought it was solid. I'm going to go ahead and give the whole book, gosh, four whirly gigs. Four, Let's say four. four. Four out of five? Yeah. Four yes. out of five. Now, this is, this. I'll, I'll reiterate, this is just within the context of, like, this is what this book is trying to do and how well mm -hmm. it does it. I'm, I'm not saying out of, the, out of the sphere of all literature I've ever consumed, right. this is a four out of five. Just to clarify um but yeah there we go if anybody else has thoughts feel free i i will give it a three and a half out okay. of five um right. on the whole it's it's definitely not my favorite 
of the seven mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and I agree with you, the pacing is not great. <laughs> um, but having, especially this time of rereading it, um, picking up on the things that I did about uh, Lucy's relationship with Aslan, looking at the other characters' relationships with Aslan, um, looking at the the symbolism of, of Bacchus, which I didn't really think about until this time. Um, mm-hmm. I always thought it was kind of strange in the past that it, the, the, the god of sex and wine shows up in the Narnia <laughs> books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I think that I gained some things from it this time reading through, but it's definitely not the strongest of the collection. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I'll say I think I don't want to say it's my favorite one so far. I guess it it, it may it might barely edge out Horse and His Boy. It's like I said, I thought Horse and His Boy was for sure better than Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe. Um, I, I'm not sure if this one's better or not, but we'll, we'll see. April Lynn, can you rank the seven books for us? Oh, <laughs> oh. by the way, I give it Giants and Junipers. That's, that's my ranking of the, <laughs> of the book. Okay. Uh. Oh, rank the books. Uh, well, I haven't read most of them in a while, so I'll rank them based on my remembrance of how much I enjoy them. Uh... I don't think I fully appreciated Horse and His Boy until the last time I read it. I'm still going to put that at the bottom. Um, but I think if I were to reread it right now, I'd probably change that. But because it's the one I remember least and it's least related to Narnia as a whole, I'm just going to put it at the bottom. Um, the top is probably The Silver Chair. Mm. Uh, closely followed by The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And then the and then Prince Caspian is probably closer to the bottom, and then somewhere in the middle there is the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and uh, the Magician's Nephew. Probably yeah. the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has to go ahead of it because it's kind of foundational for the whole series. Yeah, but I feel like the Magician's Nephew deserves a lot more than being third from the bottom. <laughs> so can they tie? Can they just like be in the middle? Yeah. They can. Uh, I'm actually, I, I am actually really excited to read the next book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Probably, it's the one I've been most excited about because this is, uh, to, to use a Star Trek metaphor, I know we don't usually do that, we're Star Wars people, but to use a Star, to use, to use a Star Trek metaphor. How dare you! <laughs> I know. I feel like this next book is the Deep Space Nine of the Chronicles of Narnia because <laughs> we've talked to everybody we've talked to a lot of people about the books and a lot of people that we've talked to place this like either at or like near the top of the list for best books in the series and Kristen does not like this one interesting like why are you comparing it that way like deep space nine is notoriously like trekkie's least favorite and it's my favorite yeah so this is like the reverse of that where like everybody who loves like the chronicles of narnia likes voyage of the dawn treader except Kristen. <laughs> so I'm really curious as to see why she doesn't like it when it's so universally. I've explained to you, sans yeah, spoiler, that yes, it is yes, a yes. voyage on a ship of island hopping, and yeah. that is what I hate about it. Yes. I don't like island hopping stories. Yeah. Like, okay. 
one of the Star Wars <laughs> movies that came out is an island hopping story, <laughs> and I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Yeah. Oh, you mean that one where like nope. Luke starts nope. Luke nope. starts nope. out on Hoth, and then he has to go to Dagobah, and then he has to go to Bespin, <laughs> and then he has to like that one. No. <laughs> no, the other one. Um, I like it but, because it's a good. I mean, I without going into details, it's a good exploration story. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there, I don't think there are any other really like exploration stories in the series. Um, they, there's some like incidental exploration, you know, the kids find themselves in Narnia and they, but it's the only one that where there's intention, uh, the silver chair has a voyage. Yeah. But again, it's not a voyage of just curiosity. But I think Chris is going to love Voyage yes, of the Dawn Treader. I, I adore exploration stories. They're... I know a lot of the people who love Voyage of the Dawn Treader <laughs> love it, love it because of... Hang on, let me, let me... La 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 la, he's not listening, la 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 la. Because of what happens in the development of Eustace's character. Mm-hmm. And like the climax of that. Yeah. Without he's, spoilers. He's a, he's a fantastic character. All right, Chris. Just I'm don't go back that. and listen to this podcast until I, he he doesn't do <laughs> he doesn't I you know I barely listen to our podcasts that that I record because I spent all that time recording the podcast now I'm gonna go back and listen to it again like I don't have time for that yeah <laughs> it's hard uh yeah so that's uh that's probably gonna wrap up this book Kristen do you want to go ahead and uh april lynn thank you so much for giving us some of your time today oh you're very welcome this was fun and it gave me a uh, excuse to reread prince caspian and to stop watching the news for an hour and yeah, <laughs> yeah and to not uh binge on senate hearings which yes is, is not something i've ever done before but it's thrilling television <laughs> same same i was watching it and i was like this is giving me flashbacks to like me as a child watching my parents watch the O.J. Simpson trials. Um, <laughs> anyway, that said, is there anything that you would like to plug? Any projects that you're doing? You've mentioned a podcast. Um, what are you doing? Sure. I'm the co-host of a podcast called The One Shot Test Kitchen, uh, where we play and review kind of lesser known indie RPGs, uh, tabletop RPGs. Uh, we're on hiatus right now, but we've got a good 20-odd-something episodes up and ready to be listened to. And then sometime in mid-February, we're going to start back up with our second season. Nice. Uh, so you can find us by looking for One Shot Test Kitchen in your favorite podcast source. Uh, or find us on social media at OSTK Podcast. Uh, and I'm also uh, with Love Thy Nerd where we write about and uh, try to just be the love of Jesus to nerds, uh, be loving to our nerdy neighbors. And you can read all of our articles, listen to our podcasts about all manner of nerdy subjects where sometimes we delve into faith and sometimes we don't at lovethynerd.com. Cool. Uh, I got to throw a question out there because, uh, Fun fact about Chris, like, I I have a soft spot in my heart for, like, weird tabletop RPG systems. I really should listen to more of your show. Um, you really but, should. There are some really great ones that we played. 
have you guys done lasers and feelings yet? Uh, that was one of the first ones we did. Second one we did, in fact. Nice. So I, I listened to that one. Okay. Okay. I've got to. I've got to go back and listen to that one. Yeah, yeah you do. Great. <laughs> yeah, it was a uh, lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Anyway, Kristen. Well, weights and water bottles. It looks like we've come to the end. I have three more of these that I really feel like I wrote down and I should use them anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, bulbs and bolsters, horns and halibuts, <laughs> whistles and whirly gigs. Mm-hmm. Kristen really, really likes the dwarf cursing. I love Trumpkin's swears. <laughs> anyway, all of that said, um, thank you again, April Lynn, for giving us so generously of your time. And thank you to our audience for joining us today. Next week, we will begin our discussion of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader with Chapter 1. And um, can't wait to do that. I'm excited to read my least favorite book in the series. Um, (laughs) If you would like to interact with us on social media, you can do so at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Chronically Pod on Twitter, or you can email us your favorite dwarven swears at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to check out One Shot Test Kitchen, the podcast April and co-hosts, and check out Love Thy Nerd. With that said, in the wise words of the king of Arkenland... Never mock a man, save when he is stronger than you. Then, as you please. And always invite Bobbies to your parties. Bye. <laughs> See ya. You'll have the same book art as I grew up with. <laughs> That's why I have it. This is the one I grew up with, too. Yes. I ordered it specifically because I wanted this edition yes and it has them in the right order it does have them in the right order uh you have it as book four yes we are reading yeah book four as book four it's supposed to be book two uh well i know that you love to oh apparently our meeting has been upgraded by the host now includes unlimited minutes delightful as a quick aside this side of the wardrobe would have been an amazing name for this podcast as well but (laughs) but Redo. Just throw it all out. Start over. (laughs) Start it over. Uh And this time you can read the books in the correct order. (laughs) Say that I disagree with you, Chris, but we can still be friends, so it's fine. (laughs) I appreciate that. Every everybody does. Besides, like Aslan's Jesus, where's the difference? (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) I know. I love Trumpkin's swears. (laughs) No, no, no. no. Like, I still wanted to stay on dwarfs, though, because we have... I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) You have a real-life dwarf? Yes. Did he bring his gold with him? (laughs) We're going to have to call this up. (laughs) 